This week, can post-Brexit Britain stand tall in the world on its own? We have always been a tier one military power and we always will be a tier one military power. But can we afford to keep that promise? Plus the Northern Ireland veterans under police investigation and remembering the Battle of Amiens 100 years on. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Jabot this week. Our politicians are supposed to be on holiday, but there is little time for lying on the beach as the Brexit deadline draws ever closer, now less than nine months away. This week, we saw the Defence Secretary heading to Washington DC to insist Britain would remain a major global player once it's outside the European Union. Indeed, Gavin Williamson told the Atlantic Council think tank that leaving the EU would in fact expand Britain's global influence. The European Union has limited our vision, discouraged us from looking to the horizon. Now we are being free to reach further and aim higher. People still worry about Brexit and what role Britain will play in the world. No one should worry. We will remain a nation that champions those fundamental values of freedom, democracy and tolerance. We will remain a global trading nation and we will remain a global force for good. And after reports that the Prime Minister had questioned whether Britain could afford to sit at the top military table to be a tier one power, her Defence Secretary sought to resolve that argument. We have always been a tier one military power and we always will be a tier one military power. Possessing an independent nuclear deterrent, world-class special forces and cyber capabilities, exceptional conventional forces, able to deploy independently around the globe. So, how significant is what Gavin Williamson has had to say? Well, let's explore that with Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and with us as always, our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Clark, can I start with you? Britain will always be a tier one military power. That is a phrase that Theresa May declined twice to use in public. Uh, do you think Mr Williamson will have had this signed off by Downing Street? Uh, I doubt it, quite in the terms in which you put it. I don't think Downing Street dis disagrees with the, the thinking behind it, but I think Downing Street gets very uh, edgy with this phrase, this slogan, a tier one military power, because it's taken to mean a lot of different things by different people. And I think the way in which Gavin Williamson was using it was the sense that we have full spectrum forces. So, you know, we do a little bit of everything that the big boys can do, like America, Russia, China, and even these days India. Um, but that's not quite the same as, as the, the way the public believes the phrase, which is somehow that we are uh, equal with those, those other powers, because clearly we're not. Christopher Lee, how important is it uh, to the United States where this message was given that the we United remain a tier one power? The United States made up its mind about you know, the United Kingdom, what it can cannot do, what it is willing to do. Uh, decades ago, I mean, the, the, I, uh, tier one... Uh, as to describe the capability and the intentions of, of, of a nation was first described in about Britain by the Americans at the time of the, was it called the Treaty, Mike, of Tonkin? Yes, yep. 1964? Four, four, yep. Yeah, and this was basically the Americans in, in, with the 
with a very small naval force backing up the South Koreans in what became the massive war of Vietnam. The United Kingdom would not join in that war and uh, said it wasn't our war. And it was then that the Americans said, you know, tier one, any, any, any time longer? No, a McNamara with his fingers pointed in, in the shape of a T. No, we're not. And so forget the history of this. The important thing is that everybody knows exactly what you are. And when you consider, for example, the Royal Navy, it's got two carriers, or will have very shortly two carriers. I don't think anybody else apart from the Americans have got a two-carrier or two-carrier or certainly one-carrier battle group that could, could have worked so effectively. So military, if you can go along with what you've got, and it's very useful in a coalition of the willing war, then that makes you somebody who turns up on demand, and that makes you a tier one in modern thinking. But I think the whole thing is, is, is unwrapped itself at a time when fundamentally Williamson is looking for more money to do more. And uh, that's and so it's good to have a slogan. And indeed, uh, James Mattis, the uh, US Defence Secretary, has said he wants to see Britain spending more money uh, to do more. He questioned in, in the past whether uh, Britain would remain the defence partner of choice. Let me just play you both uh, what uh, Gavin Williamson said, trying to restate Britain's position as America's closest ally. The United States has never had nor will have a more reliable ally than Great Britain. Others may pretend, but you will find no greater ally than us. Michael Clark, how's that going to go down in the US? Reassuring or does it sound needy? It does sound a little bit needy because we always obsess about the so-called special relationship with the United States. And we worry, of course, that the U.S. in its present mood, not just because President Trump is in the White House, but in its present mood, which is more America alone if necessary, you know, br bring the allies along by all means. But if the allies don't like what, what we do, we're going to do it anyway. That's the sort of present thinking in across the board, really, in the United States. And notice that Jim Mattis there, in the, in the things that he has said recently, he's trying to help the Ministry of Defence. He's trying to help our MOD and our Defence Secretary in their arguments with the Treasury by saying, we, the Americans, think you should, you should spend more, just the way your Defence Secretary thinks you should spend more. And that does help, but needy, I think, is the right word. We we are we, we obsess so much about our relationship with the United States as if somehow if we if that becomes harder to manage, then everything else goes wrong. And that's not necessarily true. I tell you what, I think Jim Mattis ought to be listened to or read more carefully because he is he is trying to put through from the Defence Ministry into the Oval Office, which is a very hard hard task, the concept that you don't necessarily have state-to-state -state wars, as you might think you do. There is a policy now where you might go to somebody else's war. Now, that takes a bit of explaining, so we won't try it. But think about it. You go to somebody else's war, you join in for a certain period for what to satisfy your bit of the ambition that you might have as a state of your own. Now, if you figure that out, then the tier one becomes far more understandable because a tier one means you can go to the wars you choose to. Uh, let's just broaden this out not just from the US but Britain's position in the world as a whole because of course we've also seen um, that uh, the Defence Secretary was in Africa last week uh, and, and Romania. There's been a lot of talk along the way about 
Brexit and, and Britain continuing to engage with the world? I mean, is Britain's military being sort of used at the moment as our, as our trump card for a global player while people question our future post-EU, Mike Clark? It is a bit, because it's a very strong card in our hand. And the military, of course, wants to play this role as long as they can do it without uh, undermining their combat efficiency. But they want to show that they can understand the rest of the world better because clearly they didn't understand it well enough, certainly in Afghanistan and really in Iraq as well. And so different brigades have been assigned different parts of the world to get to know them, to, to work with them in all sorts of ways. So using the military in a more diplomatic way is certainly behind this. But in the Brexit era, I mean, what Britain is failing to do is to use the military as well as the, di the diplomacy, as well as foreign aid, as well as the intelligence services and with our R&D. You know, those are the things, those are the four or five areas where we, we relate to the outside world. And putting it all on the military to say, well, you've got to help Brexit look better is, is okay. But they, they're not integrating it with all of the things that need to look better. We need to have a big external push. If Brexit is to work, we have to convince the rest of the world that we really are a different power because of Brexit. And at the moment, we're saying it, but we're not doing it. Still to come, remembering the Battle of Amiot 100 years on and the continuing row over veterans facing potential prosecution for events in Northern Ireland half a lifetime ago. It's institutionalising Sinn Féin's desire to set aside the 99% of killings to focus on 1%. It was a witch hunt. It's now become a blood sport. On the 8th of August 2008, 10 years ago, as the world was watching the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, Russian tanks and troops swept into Georgia. In just five days, Russia defeated Georgia's small military in a conflict that escalated from skirmishes between government troops and Russian-backed militias in the breakaway region of South Ossetia. Ten years on, the tensions remain, not least over Georgia's continuing ambition to join NATO. More than 100 British troops are among 3,000 currently taking part in a military exercise in Georgia. General Joseph Lenji is the chief of the US National Guard Bureau. This exercise provides an exceptional opportunity for the 13 allied and partner nations and 3,000 military personnel to enhance their readiness, their lethality, their interoperability through realistic training, learning, and greater cooperation. Uh, well, Michael Clark and Christopher Lee still with us. Uh, Mike Clark, as those exercises continue, Russia's Prime Minister warned of a terrible conflict if Georgia ever actually became a full member of NATO. And commitment to that recently reaffirmed at the summit. But is, is it realistic or is it, is it, is it just uh, uh, being a political can kick down the road. Yes, I think it is. I mean, they can't go back on it. Uh, having said back in 2008 and before that, in 2006, 2005, that they looked forward to Georgia and Ukraine becoming NATO members at some point in the future. And that was a very foolish thing to say. That was a, re a really overextension of NATO's political role. Having said it then, they can't now say, well, well, now we didn't mean it. So they have to keep it in the, in the communique. But nobody realistically expects NATO to do very much about this, um, particularly at the moment, because NATO is not in good shape to take on its existing commitments, let alone open up new ones. So it will try to show cooperation with Georgia and Ukraine. They'll try and also use that as a sort of pressure point against Russia, but always with the knowledge that if they overdo it, as they did in 2008, the West overplayed its hand and so did the Georgians themselves. It provokes the Russians to military action and everything gets worse. But what about, for example, 
these exercises because Russia, whenever NATO does anything close to the Russian border, Russia calls it provocation. Now, yes. if it's a NATO member, it, you can safely say, "Listen, we're working on our own turf." If you mm. if you are doing this in somewhere like Georgia, do you, do you not risk giving the Russians a point? Absolutely right, James. Yes, uh, and that's the point. When you when you hold, as it were, fairly big exercises in an independent state um, that you're thinking about, uh, in theory anyway, integrating into NATO, then any country will find that uh, somewhat uh, provocative. And the, the Russians certainly do. I think they pretend that they're provoked more than they really are. They can see these things coming. But uh, again, it gives them a concession, or at least it, it gives them an idea that they can force a concession by being outraged by it and so it ratchets up the the escalation ladder a little bit and and what worries me about what's going on at the moment is that it looks spookily like the summer of 2008 or the spring to early summer of 2008 when both the west and russia were playing as it were maneuvering political games which suddenly went wrong when the georgians thought that they had lots of western backing and started to uh, shell south ossetia and into abhazia and the russians said well you're not going to do this to our russian minorities and so they conducted a one-week war, which started to change the boundaries of uh, Europe. It isn't. Try and get the buzzing of the Kremlin head, how they think. Um, if you go back a couple of decades now, uh, there was a, there was this area called the Near Abroad. And the Near Abroad was also called the Warsaw Pact. It was all those countries that neighboured Russia but were in, if you like, the old Soviet Union and grouped in. Now, imagine the other way around. Just supposing, when it was all split up after 1991, just supposing that the Russians said, OK, we've now got influence in Belgium in, in, in uh, places like that, and we promise that we will never come into those countries, we will ne never set up alliances, we will never set up what you call NATO now, we will never set up sort of allegiances and invite them to take part in the Warsaw Pact. And then they do. What the Russians see is us, if you like, the West, NATO, saying you have moved into the near abroad, you're having exercises in the near abroad, etc. And that's how we feel about it. Does NATO actually need to look at almost a, a new structure, a kind of uh, actually closing its doors, but but sort of creating an associate membership, a, 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 a partnership? Now, what you, what, what the next stage in this... And that's not to cover anything. The next stage in this is very simple. NATO has to emphasize that nothing in the NATO construct, nothing in the NATO, if you like, its, it's charter, uh, will interfere or be impossible for a new candidate member, which Georgia would be a candidate member. And that includes human rights. When that's allowed, then you can start renegotiating. And I think that is probably the stage we're looking for. Uh just back to Michael Clark and, 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 and again widening out relations with Russia. We're now seeing the United States imposing sanctions over the, the Skripal poisonings in Salisbury. That's despite Donald Trump's desire to improve relations. Presumably, uh, these sanctions are just going to raise the pressure. 
Yes, they will, and there will be more of them as well in a few weeks' time. If you look at the schedule of what should happen legally, according to Congress and in, in American law, then there will be more sanctions, and there's not very much that Donald Trump can do about that, which just emphasizes the fact that the United States is in a very strange situation at the moment where the White House is operating against the, the will of Congress and vice versa and the intelligence agencies, and so there is a sort of sense of chaos in U.S. policy, which doesn't mean that the U.S. is hobbled or that the US is ineffective but it does mean that it's very volatile and I think what it means for allies like Britain and the other European powers is that we, we're just very guarded now about what we say to the US and what we what we believe of the US. In a sense we're all hunkering down for some sort of post-Trump leadership whether that's in two years time or six years time. I tell you what's interesting is that it's the police that now claim that they know who the guys were who mm. brought the stuff into an operation. Russians, they say, we know what happened. We know it through electronic intelligence gathering. We've, we, we tracked them. Now, that is a totally different ballgame. Mm. Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time today. No doubt we will discuss this once again in the future. More than a dozen former soldiers have so far been interviewed by police in Northern Ireland investigating the events around Bloody Sunday. That investigation remains hugely controversial, raising the prospect of veterans now in their 70s facing prosecution and potentially jail for actions dating back close to 50 years. The government has ruled out legal intervention to stop prosecutions, but last week the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, appeared to intervene. Although he didn't specifically mention Northern Ireland, he did say he wanted to halt what he called vexatious claims against veterans. If people pursue vexatious claims in the way that they did in Iraq and might do in future campaigns, what would worry all of the leadership uh, is that people perhaps would not take the risks that we need them to take on battlefields and that our combat ethos and our fighting spirit would be undermined. Well, among those leading the campaign on behalf of veterans under investigation is Colonel Tim Collins, a former commanding officer of 1st Battalion Royal Irish Regiment. I spoke to him a little earlier. He thinks the investigations are part of an effort by Republican politicians to blacken the name of the British Army. What they're trying to do is get servicemen into the dock to prove there's what they call an equivalence of violence, i.e. the state was as guilty, if more, in fact, probably more guilty than they were of violence, which is a complete fallacy. What the IRA did, in fact, Sinn Féin on their behalf, thought there was some ambiguity about 234 of their people. So those, they presented those names to the chief constable and those cases were investigated. And all the individuals were either given a letter to say they weren't being pursued, which means there was no evidence um, that they were being pursued, which was a comfort letter that means they can't reopen those cases unless new evidence comes along. Every serviceman, every policeman who served in Northern Ireland should write to the chief constable, to, to George Hamilton, say, am I being investigated for uh, crime sharing my service? Here are the dates I served in, and if so, what am I being investigated for? So if somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 servicemen write in to ask for this, the system will collapse and this whole thing will go away. What do you think is wrong, or maybe you don't think is wrong, with the system, the suggestion being put forward by the Northern Ireland Secretary, Karen Bradley, that it, it, effectively a unit is uh, set up to investigate allegations of killings on all sides to simply do them in sequential order. That way, everybody is getting equal treatment. That's a nonsense. Only 1% of illegal killings were carried out by members of the security forces either on or off duty. 99% 
of illegal killing in Northern Ireland throughout 30 years were carried out by the paramilitaries. Are you saying it's, it's, it's not worth investigating if there is an allegation, a, 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 an allegation of wrongdoing against a member of the armed forces? You're saying that's not worth investigating, are you? Uh, that's not what I said, no. What I said is it should be done proportionately. But isn't the, isn't the system that's being suggested by Karen Bradley proportionate? Not in the least. What? It's a total distortion. What, what it is, it's institutionalising Sinn Féin's desire to take, to set aside the 99% of killings to focus on 1%. And that's what the government has agreed to. It, it was a witch hunt. It's now become a blood sport. Isn't the reality of a peace process that... Either you have to draw a line under everything on all sides or you have to investigate the claims that are made against all sides equally. But but you've got to do one or the other. Well, do one or the other. But what's happening at the moment is it's a, a massive distortion so that uh, currently on the books, more than 54% of the cases are being investigated against the security forces who carried out, as we know, less than 1% of illegal killings. So the 99% of illegal killings are not being investigated, and that's a distortion. Do you believe that the armed forces were expected to hold ourselves to the very highest standards, and, and that might mean higher standards than those who are seen as terrorists? Absolutely, but then there comes a ridiculous point, and this is where the media fall into the trap. The British Army maintains the highest standards. These are being pursued so that Sinn Féin can show its constituency that it is less guilty of the murders, which it actually is fully guilty of. It wants to become a modern political party. And their strategy is to damn black in the name of the British Army by getting it to um, reinvestigate cases and which draw the interest away from the, the vast number of murders that they did. Colonel Tim Collins speaking to me a little earlier. Christopher, today the former Chief of Defence Staff, Lord Bramall, describing investigations as absurd and grossly unfair. The government is unwilling to do what he, Tim Collins, and others are demanding and halted. Is it, do you think, because they can't or because they choose not to? I think it's partly because they can't. Uh, put some perspective on this. A lot of the things that they would like to have investigated, and that's everybody... Uh, say in the political side uh, a lot of those things took place from 69 onwards uh, until about sort of just sorry, 75, 76 the 70s anyway where the conditions were quite different the army for example training was quite different there were still uh, the, the, the lax powers of interrogation they were still calling interrogation uh, etc it was also through 14 company a question of identifying people and having people in who would then uh, sort of say he did it, I did it, they did it, etc. And people were shot. A lot of this stuff also went through to the B Specials, who were the special constabulary of the uh, uh, of, uh, in in Northern Ireland, and they were responsible. And somebody else was responsible for giving the information. Therefore, you can tie a soldier down in Ashford, Kent, in the inter what was then the intelligence centre, uh, with something that went on in Northern Ireland, and that is the difficulty of actually getting into this and into the way of a di whole different society as it then was. Is this a, a, a weakness, actually, a, a hole in the, in the Good Friday Agreement, that it didn't properly pin down how this process would progress? Or is it actually that that 
process has perhaps been derailed as we, we saw you know for example court cases that that were had to be thrown out because of the letters of comfort that were were sent uh, that were not part of the the original good friday agreement. if you go back to the game in the late 70s if you go back and see the response to big incidents big big issues etc one for example the the, the association of, of of lord mountbatten another uh, warren point when 14 guys were killed. The responses of the political parties is exactly the same as it is now to the military. Nothing has changed, and you're into a second generation of politics now, and nothing has changed, and the chances are it's not going to change. The Royal Victoria Hospital was built in Hampshire in 1856, the Army's first purpose-built hospital. It served the military for more than a century, but then fell into disrepair. Now, millions have been spent conserving and restoring what remains of the building. Tim Cooper has been to have a look round. It used to call patients to prayer. Now the chapel stands proud but alone, a starkly beautiful building in the middle of a country park. All that's left of the Royal Victoria Hospital at a place called Netley Abbey in Hampshire. It was once a vast army hospital, stretching for hundreds of yards in all directions. Now, thanks to a £3.5 million grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund and Hampshire County Council, the building has been restored, and within, there's a new exhibition explaining the history of the site. Heritage manager Lauren Rhodes explains more. It was so important for us as a project team that we retained the historic fabric of the building, um, whilst also telling the story of the history of the site. We have so many visitors um, who come to the park who don't know that there once was the biggest military hospital in the UK on this site. The hospital's got its roots in the Crimean War. Britain was shocked by the number of casualties and Queen Victoria commissioned the building of a military hospital in 1856 with direct access from the sea for troops returning home from foreign wars. Hence the hospital was built on Southampton Water near the Solent. There were two wings with enough beds for a thousand patients. Lauren has climbed the 109 steps to the top of the tower. Now, we've been really lucky over the last eight weeks to have this incredible heat wave. Um, and what it's actually done is completely dried out the fields surrounding the hospital. And amazingly, you can now see the foundations of the hospital coming out. Um, so they're only six or seven inches underneath the ground. Um, and the fields are completely dry. So you can see the corridors, the wards, the storerooms, all laid out either side of the chapel. Back downstairs in the exhibition space, Hampshire County Councillor Sean Woodward is looking around. His grandfather was treated here in 1924. He believes it's vital that the history of this site has been preserved. It operated over such a long period, yeah, the 1860s, when Queen Victoria took such a great interest and then opened it all the way through. Really, there was still medical treatment for forces personnel going on this site through till about 1980. So. You know, there was a very long history, a very long pedigree. The chapel is now open to the public and stands ready to tell all those who visit about Britain's first purpose-built military hospital. Demolished in 1966, but not forgotten. Tim Cooper for SITREP, Netley Abbey. Now this week we have marked the centenary of another pivotal moment in the First World War. The Battle of Amiens is perhaps not as well remembered as Passchendaele or the Somme, but it was hugely significant. 
at Amiens Cathedral, the Duke of Cambridge and Theresa May joined descendants of some of those who fought in the four-day battle. Prince William spoke about the battle's significance. Amiens was symbolic of the Entente Cordiale, the cooperation without which victory was impossible. It is entirely fitting, therefore, that today that same international coalition has returned to Amiens with our former enemy in peace and partnership. Uh, Christopher, the word pivotal I used, hugely significant. We've heard a lot of that in the coverage. Why was Amiens so important? You just imagine it. You've been fighting for four years, most of it in mud and confusion. You've got to the point where your public starts to refer to it as an army which is uh, commanded by donkeys and, and fought by lions. And then somebody, a new command system comes in and it says, we've got more technology now. We have, for instance, since 1917, tanks on a large scale. I mean, Britain had 500 tanks in this battle. We have aircraft that can start to do bombing, which is something that never happened before. And we've got an army which we can plan. Amiens was that. And on the 8th of August, they sent it into an operation. The Germans, with no idea that all this was happening, there were four phases. On the first phase was a complete advance. And it went so fast that the British Army tried to keep up with itself. The second phase was second, exactly the same, went charging in. Germans surrendered. They were 30,000 killed. Some of them choose not to surrender. And then it started to slow down. And then it had been done. And soldiers woke up in the morning and said, where are we? We'd never seen this place before. This was the beginning of the ending and of, course, of the First World War. And 100 days the armistice was, was signed, 100 days later. 100 days later it was signed. And this was probably because it was such a success, we never think about it. Christopher, thank you very much indeed, and indeed to all this week's guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at the FBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, I will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.